This is the Identity at the Center podcast. This is the show that talks about identity and access management and making sure you know who has access to what. Let's get started. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff and that's Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jeff. How's it going? I'm pretty good. How about you? Good, good. Just noticing there's more leaves on the ground than there are on the trees. So we're at that time of year. Well, you must be lucky. You, you, you sounds like you still have leaves on your trees. Ours are completely gone at this point. Uh, it is full-blown uh, bare trees at this point in the Chicago area. Yeah, I guess you're just fortunate that it's not that they're not covered up with snow at the moment. No, not yet, but we know that's, that's going to happen at some point. That's just uh, the joy of the North, I guess. doesn't bother me, though. I like the colder weather. It's a lot of better than than hot and humid. You remember one of my favorite TV series, Winter is Coming. <laughs> Winter is Coming. Um, we probably don't want to get into Game of Thrones, though, because the last season was so um, polarizing. Let's let's just say that. How about that? Uh, how about disappointing? <laughs> you know what? I liked it. It was still, you know, I still enjoyed it. I think. All right. We're going to get into it, I guess, real quickly. So. Um, I thought that the battle for Winterfell at the end was really kind of the main ending, uh, which I thought mm-hmm. was a great episode. Um, and then, yeah, they they rushed through the rest of the episodes to kind of get things done within the season. I think they should have stretched it out for one more season, but you know, I'm guessing somewhere there was a financial decision. Even the battle for Winterfell was um, criticized because it was so dark. Yeah, but that was the whole point. It was supposed to be dark. I mean, night is coming. Yeah, I just wish they said, you know, crank up the brightness on your TV or something. I don't know. I just had a hard time actually seeing it. Yeah, we were definitely squinting quite a bit at that one, but I enjoyed it because I thought it I thought it really added to the whole thing, right? It's kind of like, you know, where where are these attacks going to come from? You just can't see any further than, you know, a couple of feet in front of you, but yeah. Um, yeah. Well, anyway, this is not the Game of Thrones podcast. This is Identity at the Center. We talk about identity and access management. Um, we've also got a snazzy new intro this week, something that uh, you and I kind of chatted about the before we got started uh, uh, this weekend, or this, this previous weekend, I should say, before we hit record. A little dubstep. Yeah, a little little something, something on top of there. See how that goes. <laughs> so, um, you know, if folks like it, great. If you don't, let us know, too. <laughs> you know, we're happy to, to take uh, that under advisement. Doesn't mean we'll change it, but, you know, let us know what you think about it. Um, All right. So with that kind of stuff out of the way, um, today for identity access management, we're going to talk about different trends and challenges uh, that have kind of come up over over the uh, industry recently. And to help us with that conversation, we've got a guest. His name is Asad Ali. He's from Talis, and he's also the chair of the Identity Defined Security Alliance Technical Working Group. Welcome to the show, Asad. Uh, Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me and really glad to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, why don't we dive right into it? And really our first question that we always ask all of our guests is, how did you get into identity and access management? Is it something that you chose or did it choose you? Uh, actually, a little bit of both. And I'm sure that you get uh, similar reactions from your other guests uh, about this question. Uh, but from my side, I mean, I'll start by saying that, uh, well, it all started in early uh, 2000s when when I was in the, at Schomburger and I joined uh, a smart card research group and the thing that we were trying to tackle there was well how to bring smart cards to the mainstream computing and the reason that we wanted to do that was to essentially offer uh, strong authentication and at that point we felt that well strong authentic- authentication can only be offered when it is backed by a hardware token 
And, and one thing which I remember from those days, and you guys may have also seen that, uh, is that in 1993 in New Yorker, there was a cartoon by Peter Steiner. Uh, where there were two dogs. One dog was sitting on the keyboard. There was another one sitting on the floor looking very puzzled at the dog above. And the dog that was standing on, sitting on the chair uh, basically looks down and says, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. And at that point, we felt, aha, well, the kind of work that we are doing, I mean, maybe we can solve that problem because here we have a smart card, which is a strong token. And what we wanted to do was to bring it into the mainstream computing so that you can now authenticate with a, with a smart card so that others on the other side of the internet divide would know who you are. So that's where I really uh, got a start into what we now call IEM. At that point, of course, we were looking at strong authentication. And uh, as we now know, I mean, strong authentication is one part of the overall identity and access management picture. Uh, it's a very essential part, but it's uh, not uh, uh, sufficient in itself because you need to add more things to it. So over the years, I mean, as the group evolved and uh, I took on more roles in, uh, in the CTO office where we looked at other aspects of, uh, uh, of security, uh, both for data and for identity, uh, we started looking at other venues of how authentication could be uh, springboard where you could now uh, protect other aspects. And uh, then recently, uh, and, and I say recently because it's been a, a couple of years, but on, I think in the history of IAM, I mean, it was recent. Uh, we started looking at a product of our own in identity and access management. We, we took the uh, authentication piece and then evolved it so that uh, authentication was one thing, but now you want to look at uh, what is it that you're authenticating to, where are you authenticating from, and for how long you need that authentication, and then to look at other signals. So this is where my complete dive into the IAM products uh, within Thales happened over the course of years. Yeah, it's amazing that you started out tackling kind of the the base problem on the internet, which is proving who you are and not having others, you know, impersonate you to conduct any kind of nefarious activity. And that's still the same problem that we're trying to solve today. And probably 20 years from now, we'll be at some level trying to solve and staying one step ahead of of the, the criminal element, if you will. Uh, but it, it's fantastic that you um, are now giving so much of your time to the Identity Defined Security Alliance. We had uh, Julie Smith on the podcast many moons ago, and uh, it seems like many moons ago, she was um, very generous with her time and kind of gave us the outline of what the IDSA is all about. Wondering how you got involved with the group and what your role is at IDSA. So, uh, so the Jim, as I mentioned, I mean, uh, uh, I, I started taking a deeper dive into IAM uh, at around the time when Thales, uh, that was Jamalto at that time, in, uh, in uh, early 2017, uh, late 20, uh, 2016. Uh, so at that point, somebody mentioned to me that, well, there's this alliance of uh, industry players uh, uh, which are looking at what's happening in the identity and access management space. And uh, uh, they mentioned that, well, there's a meeting in Palo Alto. Would you like to go to that? And I said, well, okay, let's go and, and, and see what, what, what things are uh, happening and what other players are involved in this uh, so that we can actually uh, learn from them and actually contribute to the industry uh, because we have our own, as I mentioned, a very strong and focus and background in authentication and see how authentication plays in this space. So I remember uh, taking a flight from Austin to, uh, to Palo Alto where the face-to-face -face meeting was. And at that point, I went there just to check things out to see what this new kid on the block was doing uh, with IDSA. 
and uh, and I have to tell you, I mean, I was really uh, impressed by the the level of experience and the motivation that was shown by the people who were there um, at that uh, inaugural meeting, and uh, that essentially uh, was the genesis of my involvement. I mean, that was probably the first meeting at that point. And at that point, I mean, it was not a fully funded organization. It was funded in part by Ping and by Optiv. Uh, but there were other industry players uh, like Okta, uh, Okta and, and VMware and, and, and others and, and Jamal Toad like us that, that were curious to see what was going on. And, and since then, I have been involved pretty much all along. Uh, I mean, attending their calls and going to their face-to-face -face workshops. And then uh, about two years ago, uh, Julie uh, uh, offered to me the position of the chair of the, the technical working group. And, and I, was, uh, I was really thrilled about that. And, uh, and basically, uh, ever since then, I mean, have been managing what goes on in the technical side of IDSA, uh, managing the, the technical working group and coordinating the work of uh, several subcommittees that we have not formed. So it's, it's been a very interesting journey and, uh, and I fully enjoyed it. So what does a technical working group do? So the technical working group, uh, uh, if you look at it, I mean, when you look at IDSA, there are a couple of things that uh, the Alliance tries to do. Uh, one, of course, is to promote uh, different hygienes about identity, uh, make the, the, the concept of uh, uh, identity and security known to the general public. And that is done through various marketing channels. Uh, but before, before you can go to those marketing channels, you have to have some content. I mean, you have to say, okay, well, if you're talking about identity hygiene, well, these are the steps that you can take. Uh, or if you're talking about uh, the concept of zero trust, well, this is what we think zero trust really means, and this is how you should adopt it. Uh, and then the next question would be that, well, uh, what are the things that you could do in sequence? So we give them various uh, steps. So all that content uh, of what to broadcast to the outside world uh, that is driven by the work of the technical working group. So you can think of technical working group as, uh, uh, as a think tank uh, or as a, a policy think tank in terms of what is happening in different uh, uh, organizations, uh, the various member companies, which are members of IDSA. So they bring their own expertise. And then collectively, we basically put forward uh, uh, a roadmap um, or a, 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 a a way of getting things done uh, or, uh, or, or a timeline of what the customers should do uh, in order to uh, get something which is, which is really useful for, for their organization to address certain problems. So in short, the technical working group basically delivers the main content, uh, which IDSA then broadcasts to its members. So Asad, I would imagine that being over all the technical working groups, you are involved in all of them at some level, and it must be really educational for you. You must be learning at, a, at an amazing pace considering all the, the big thinkers who are involved. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and sometimes it gets really hard to keep, keep pace with the activities that is, that is going on. And, uh, and it's interesting that you mentioned that I mean all these parallel groups which are happening and that itself evolved over time. I remember that when we were first uh, participating in IDSA, uh, the earlier uh, one or two years, uh, there was essentially one group which was working on the technical side. And everybody would basically get involved and we would pick one topic and then work on that for a couple of months and then finalize it, let's say, during a workshop and then we would move on to another topic. Now, as the organization grew and the, the, uh, the topics of interest also grew, that's where we thought of the idea of actually having things done in parallel. 
So at this point, we have about seven parallel uh, subcommittees which are working under the auspices of the technical working group. And you're right. I mean, uh, sometimes I have to juggle uh, from one group to the other, and I cannot attend all the calls. But I know that I mean those subcommittees are in good hands because uh, the people who are leading them are are really experts in what they do. One of those uh, working groups is Zero Trust, and I know that you know Zero Trust has been around for a long time. Maybe didn't have that kind of that branding with it, but it's certainly become, um, I think, one of the hot topics in the IAM space, and it really kind of revolves around um, you know basically not trusting anybody in the network, whether they're internal or external or um, you know, even in, on an app by app basis and, and prompting for authentication uh, more often maybe than not. Um, what are some of the things that you've seen from that zero trust model and how has it evolved over time? Yeah, I think Jeff, that's, that's a very interesting question in terms of zero trust because we know that, I mean, that is uh, at the forefront of everybody's thinking and their roadmaps. Uh, so, I mean, the, the way we see zero trust in IDSA in particular. So I'll mention zero trust I mean, from the lens of IDSA, and then we can talk about maybe some various other aspects. Uh, is that when you look at zero trust, I mean, uh, of course we know the history. Uh, uh, I mean, it started off in, uh, in, in 2010, so it's nothing new. I mean, it came out of the, the Forrester uh, uh, organization. Uh, and then uh, Google basically published their academic paper on Beyond Cope, and then later on, uh, Gartner basically got into the game. And in 2017, I mean, they had this, uh, uh, this Carta framework that they put forward. And then Forrester also came back again and they talked about the Zero Trust extended version in 2018 or so. So we've seen this happening over time, but uh, the question is that, well, uh, other than this uh, chronological evolution of various material which has been produced, uh, where does IDSA see Zero Trust happening? And the way we see it is that, well, uh, people generally think of Zero Trust at the network level, that uh, uh, the initial concept of oh, don't trust only at the network level. I mean, do the authentication when people access the network, but then after that, keep doing continuous authentication. Uh, even the literature that we see right now, for instance, the, the zero trust, uh, trust reference architecture that came out of NIST last year, uh, it was still focused on the network. That, okay, well, you continue to do your security based upon the signals that you're collecting from the network. And what IDSA provided, and that was again, the collective thought leadership of all the companies which are part of IDSA uh, was that, well, let's focus on identity. Uh, let's not focus on the network. Uh, let's not focus on the network. Let's not focus on the devices that the user is connecting from. Uh, those can give you additional side signals, but the focus should be on identity because in the end, it's the user which is asking for access and is being granted access to a particular resource, whether it's an application or whether it's a data. So that's that's where we see uh, zero trust fitting in. And uh, having mentioned that from the IDSA angle, I mean, I can tell you some stories about how we see it on the on the, on the Thales side, but I think before we go there, I mean, maybe uh, it would be interesting to see, I mean, what's your view of zero trust is, because I'm sure that you've been in the industry and you've talked to so many analysts and experts. So. Does this representation of zero trust, I mean, uh, jive with what you what you have seen? I mean, from my perspective, I, I think the reason it is such a hot topic in IAM is because if you're going to have a zero trust approach, which I think makes a lot of sense, right? Um, because getting past that perimeter can happen either if you have a fumbled credential or uh, somebody accesses your a weak point in your wireless network or something. Um, but the, the focus of it is that you have to be able to authenticate over and over again. And the stronger the authentication, obviously, the better. 
that's why it brings it into the IEM space because you have to have a strong IEM foundation. That's why, you know, I mean, Jeff and I are obviously big believers in that. We've mm-hmm. taken our podcast and called it Identity at the Center. That's that's the mindset is that, you know, when you build a strong identity foundation, it really ups your game completely from uh, an information security standpoint. And, you know, the traditional, I'll call it the traditional reliance on the strong perimeter. I remember when I first got into IT, it was all about the, the crunchy shell and the the soft gooey inside, you know, kind of talking about like an M and M, you know, as the analogy for a, an I or for a security uh, approach. And right. we just see that that's not sufficient these days. Absolutely, and I think another aspect uh, of interest is that well, how have people gone about uh, solving this problem? And and when I think about, I mean, what the current approaches are, it always reminds me of uh, what we did. Let's say. With the, with authentication. So, so here we are, we're talking about identity and access management, and we know the difference between IAM and authentication, and we know that zero trust is really critical to that. Uh, but authentication had its own problems, which were solved in a certain way, and I think we are trying to solve the IAM problems with zero trust uh, uh, in, 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 in something which is related. And for the authentication side, if you remember, I mean, we, there was a, the pre-Federation days, the, the pre-SAML and the pre-OpenID uh, Connect days, and then the post days. And when I look at that, uh, uh, it reminds me, well, the problems that we were trying to solve there was that there were three players. There was the user, there was the enterprise, and then there was the service provider. And the status quo in the pre-federation days was that you go to the enterprise and they give you an account on the service provider, and then another account at another service provider. And pretty soon you have a list of about 10 different service providers that you had the accounts with, and you had to remember the passwords for all of them. So the user was not happy. Uh, You had the uh, enterprise sitting in the middle they were not happy because they felt that they were out of control. I mean, the user leaves the organization or there's a change of uh, role uh, within the organization, but the user still has all the accounts which have been issued pre previously and they can directly access the service provider. Uh, from the side of the service provider, uh, they were not happy because they had to manage these passwords. I mean, password management is hard, as you know, I mean, the database gets breached and now you're all over the news. Uh, if you do strong authentication, you have to issue hardware tokens. That's uh, its own problem. So you had a situation where none of these three parties were happy. And that was solved by the Federation. You put the identity provider in the middle and now all of them are happy. Uh, but as you mentioned that, I mean, well, if you do your security at the perimeter, well, that happiness is short-lived because now you entered the perimeter, now what do you do? And I think this is the problem that we're trying to address with zero trust that, uh, well, even if you have authenticated through an IDP, you have entered the perimeter, what are you going to do now? So you have to collect all the signals then to make sure that there's a continuous monitoring of the user's activity that is going on. Yeah, and the next thing that I wanted to ask you about was another uh, technical working group around artificial intelligence. But to me, it, it, it weaves into kind of the point you were just making around building a, um, a satisfactory user experience while at the same time not giving up security. Because I, I think a satisfactory user experience is I don't want to have to be inconvenienced with your security processes, but at the same time, my expectation is you're going to keep my data secure. We've always thought about that traditionally as there's a trade-off between user experience and security. But now with the advent of AI, or not the advent of AI, but more the application of AI to authentication, we can really start to achieve 
and improve user experience and improve security at the same time. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Absolutely, I'm I'm, I'm fully in agreement with this. I mean, I, I fully agree with you that I mean, with AI we can uh, uh, hopefully uh, uh, conquer that 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 aspect because. Uh, uh, so far, I mean, uh, security and usability, they have been on the opposite ends of the spectrum. You can have one, but not both. And interestingly, I mean, that's one of the things that we were trying to do back in the days when I was working on those secure elements and, and smart cards to basically bring security to the mainstream computing. Uh, but with AI, I think uh, uh, we have, we still have challenges. Uh, I mean, a, the field of AI has evolved quite a bit from the early days when uh, uh, Marvin Minsky, uh, who was one of the founders of AI uh, at the MIT lab, I mean, he used to basically tell his students, okay, well, make me a machine uh, which can differentiate between a cat and a dog. And of course, with the computing resources which were available at their disposal back then, that was a very daunting task. Uh, but now when we look at AI, uh, the abundance of data and the uh, phenomenal power of computing that we have, I mean, that can become a reality. Uh, the other thing about uh, AI is that, well, we can think about that in different layers. Uh, so one layer is, of course, AI. There's traditionally people know about that. Uh, machine learning is basically uh, another name for that, which I think is a more marketing name, because sometimes people think that, well, AI is old school. So let's talk about uh, machine learning. Uh, and then uh, e even uh, a further focused approach of machine learning could be the deep learning. So in machine learning, you basically have this idea that, well, give machines access to large amounts of data and then guide them to figure things out. Whereas in deep learning, you say, okay, well, we give them access to large amounts of data, but not we don't have to guide them. They basically can learn by themselves. And I think it's that learning by themselves, which is of interest when it comes to uh, authenticating users. So one example of that could be that, let's say if I have my environment at home where I have my, uh, I have, I have my laptop and I have various peripheral devices, which are either connected to it or basically just sitting around in the work environment. And, and if they are Bluetooth devices, I mean, they can communicate with the authentication application. And that application could continue to monitor their presence. And then over time learn that, well, if Asad is in this environment, then it must be him. So back to the analogy of what we had that, well, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. Uh, but in this case now, based upon the environment that you're in, I mean, you could assert that, well, these characteristics belong to the user. Uh, that that has logged in before and is currently logging in. So, so you're right. I mean that that is something which could be uh, of of interest in terms of how we uh, how we perceive user authentication and and to and to do it without any uh, burden on the user, as opposed to asking the user to to log in every time because that in a, in a way it could be one way. I mean every time you go from one page to the other, the screen could pop up and say, "Well, please enter your password." Uh, but uh, you may have some security. Uh, but uh, but not 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 convenience not by a long shot. Yeah, I think the the trend right now that I'm seeing is from from a user authentication standpoint is to move more towards recognition and being smart about identifying people, you know who they are using different signals ahead of time, whether it's you know keyboard cadence or mobile phone or network or maybe it's a combination of all that stuff and the AI AI and the machine learning right, which is probably a marketing term, right? Uh, help help with that recognition so that the systems can be smarter about when and where to authenticate. I think that's, I think that's the trend that I'm seeing as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's something I think people have tried to do in the past, but that was limited to uh, the uh, network analyzer. So they would analyze where the user is coming from. Uh, but now I think instead of just looking at the network, you are looking at 
everything which is surrounding the user's environment. And I think this is where AI, is, as you rightly pointed out, I mean, it can have a, have a big impact. You know, one thing, one challenge that I've seen with AI implementations in access management systems is that I feel like proprietary algorithms are applied and there's not a lot of control um, provided to the team administering the system to kind of move the dials to say what is going to be um, triggering activity. What What are your thoughts there? Are you seeing the same thing? Uh, I think so. So, so proprietary algorithms, uh, that could be an issue. You, you, you're right. Because uh, I think uh, in the end, I think it's only how well you train the model. And, uh, and and so so those algorithms could could certainly be a factor in it. Uh, another factor uh, could be the data that you feed into those models. So sometimes, I mean, the algorithms could be made public and now it's basically the strength of the data or the relevance of the data which could generate whether your model uh, predicts the right things or not. And and that's where I see some of the, uh, the, the pitfalls of AI in what people have called the AI bias. Uh, because uh, and 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 a, and a good example of that could be that let's say if your if your model is looking at uh, uh, predictability of of success that uh, which employees let's say in an organization would succeed, and if the model is looking at okay well what have been the uh, predictors of those of such a success in the past and they look at okay well all the the people in the organization uh, high posts in the organization are all all white males, so that could actually feed in the into the model and then that could have an adverse effect on uh, uh, on, on diversity. So people have talked about having a data set which is uh, relevant for the future and not essentially uh, looking at the past to see what has happened in the past. So so you're right. I mean, the, the algorithms can make a difference, uh, but so can the data which is fed into those algorithms. Right. That's, a, that's an interesting perspective, especially when you go beyond the employee population you're talking about a public service, you have to make sure that it doesn't have certain biases, which are unfair to certain populations. Absolutely. Um, yeah, great perspective. And and speaking of which, you know, shifting beyond that enterprise view and another technical working group, we're, we're really good at these transitions, you see. Another technical working group is customer I am. And this is an area of, of uh, great focus for me and just something I'm tremendously interested in, the difference between customer and employee population. So you have a working group focused just on this, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about the, the work that's happening there. So, so the work that we're doing in that group is to essentially um, see what the similarities and differences are when we talk about uh, the traditional IAM, uh, which has also been called the enterprise IAM, and, and the customer IAM. And, 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 and it's fascinating to see that, well, there's quite a bit of an overlap because in one sense, I mean, everybody is a customer, uh, but in another sense, I mean, there's stark differences. So so I'll, I'll talk about the differences more so that we can paint a picture of, okay, why is it that customer IAM is getting so uh, so, so important these days? And, in, and if I were to list those differences, I mean, there are about five or six, which, which I would like to mention. And the first one is scale. So when we talk about scale, I mean, we're not talking about hundreds or thousands but now we're talking about millions. So these are the number of users that, that you would have. So your, so your system has to scale up very rapidly as the demand increases. And that demand can, can increase in a, in, in, a, in a blink of an eye. I mean, you could have one tweet, you could have one message on, on Facebook or 
uh, one sporting event and then all of a sudden everybody is clamoring to basically find out what's, what's happening and since your base is entire uh, population not just employees i mean that demand could grow uh, drastically so so the scale has to be considered uh, very critical uh, another one is availability i mean in the case of employees uh, your employees uh, work nine to five or maybe an extended hour uh, and then the demand tapers off over the weekend in the case of customers that doesn't happen i mean the uh, the, the normal uh, thing that we mentioned is that well, customers don't sleep. So which means that you have to be up literally 24 by 7, which is something that you may get a little relaxation in the enterprise case. Uh, we also have the case of usability. So in the employee case, if your interface is a little lacking on the user usability side, you may be forgiven because essentially you're not purchasing the system, your employer is purchasing the system and sometimes that system is enforced on you and you have to use it. So even if the usability is not that great, uh, you may work with it. Whereas in the customer case, if there's even a small uh, uh, shortfall in the in, in the usability aspect, uh, they'll just walk away. I think that's one of the biggest um, aspects of CIM that, that really makes the difference. I mean, everything you're saying is, is right on, but this is where I see, uh, I see organizations willing to invest in customizing the experience to present an experience that makes sense for their uh, user base versus on the enterprise side, if you're rolling out an identity governance system, you try to work within the box to the greatest extent possible. Obviously you want to brand the screens and all that, that's great, but you don't want to completely change the interface of the product that you're implementing because it gets expensive to you know, to implement and to maintain. And it gets expensive on the CIM side as well, but it's considered to be worth the expense because these are uh, the folks that are, you know, spending money with your organization, for example. Absolutely, absolutely. And in this case, in the other case, I mean, since you're spending money, you're a customer, you're paying them for something, you want to make sure that everything that you're paying for, uh, you're getting your money's worth. So Asad, you work on these, on these different technical groups and you've also got a day job. You know, where, where do you consider your area of expertise to be when it comes to identity and access management? Do you feel like you you, you slot into a specific area or, um, you know, do you focus on things like zero trust, customer stuff? Um, you know, where, what else do you work on? So actually all, all across the board. I mean, that that's uh, uh, one of the downsides, if you, will, if you may say, of being in a CT organization, because you have to look at all aspects of technology. So, so in my role uh, inside, uh, the the Thales uh, cybersecurity uh, business line CTO office. I, I look at uh, uh, the identity side, which includes well uh, how authentication works. So we are always looking at new ways of doing authentication. And when we say authentication, it's uh, the things that we talked about in the uh, just now in this call about AI and how AI can be used to uh, recognize instead of uh, authenticate. So we look at those areas. Uh, then we look at uh, strong forms of authentication. Uh, how can authentication be improved, whether it's with the PKI-based hardware tokens or uh, or using a FIDO token or things like that. And and, and then uh, uh, also look at uh, uh, the, the the strategy of how the, the product should be developed. So, so that's my contribution to the strategy team in terms of uh, uh, looking at these technologies. Uh, another area of interest which I have uh, is more on the cryptographic protocols uh, to, to see, okay, when, if you have to build a solution, uh, how would you stitch together the cryptographic algorithms to build a protocol which would serve that need? And and whether it be 
provisioning of keys uh, which are provisioned uh, on the server or generated on the secure element itself uh, or how the communication happens between two endpoints and uh, and then what the cryptographic protocol actually achieves uh, like communication between a mobile device and a backend server or securing of the apis uh, when they're making api calls on the backend so so those are the things which are which are of interest to me uh, which uh, uh, align with the identity and access management uh, but they also align with the protection of data, uh, which I think is equally important uh, when it comes to the overall uh, security of of, uh, of users and their uh, and their resources. Well, at the end of the day, right? It's who has access to what, and the what is those are those resources, and got to make sure it's secure. Uh, I'm curious if you've gotten involved in starting to look at ultra wideband. I know that that's been around actually for a little while in other areas. Uh, actually, I think it started off as you know military and like radar. Mm -hmm. And the promise that we're seeing now from different vendors like Apple and others is, you know, using your phone as a key for your car, right? Or maybe it's, mm -hmm. you know, for the lock. Now, I have Bluetooth locks on my door because, of course, I do. I'm a big nerd. Um, but it's a different technology completely in that it's it's more directional based. You can, um, you know, pinpoint where something is in relation to something else. And I'm curious if you've seen any application around that in the security space, you know, when it comes to identity management. Yes, I think I think there've there've been quite a few cases. And again, I mean, since the the since Talus works in the digital space, so so we have uh, uh, quite a bit of experience in how these digital devices can help you in day-to-day -day lives. And examples of that could be uh, your uh, uh, your 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 uh, your bus or your, your train cards. So basically in transportation system. So that's quite heavily used in, in Europe. So instead of carrying a paper ticket, you basically have a smart card and then you load your uh, your, your, your miles uh, or your payment on it uh, as, as, as you go along. So that's one example. So another, an, another example could be in your passports, for instance. So for instance, when we have uh, uh, the digital passport that is issued by the, by the US, I mean, it has a, a smart card chip in it. So that would be another example of where a secure device could be used uh, to basically prove your identity uh, at, at the port of entry. Uh, a third one that comes to mind uh, is in the banking sector. So for instance, in the banking sector, we have uh, uh, the new cards which are issued by, uh, by, by the banks. Instead of having a max stripe at the back, they have uh, a smart card chip in it. So that chip can provide uh, better assurance about your identity. Uh, it can provide better assurance about the transactions that you do and thereby increase the, the overall security posture, not only for you, but from the banks as well, because otherwise, I mean, they would be left holding the bag in case there's a fraud and they have to pick up the tab. And I think it's interesting because I see an opportunity to leverage something like ultra wideband, which, you know, all the use cases we've kind of been talking about here, you know, could be done through things like NFC um, or, you know, other wireless protocols, RFID, et cetera. I think a promise that I can see for, for ultra wideband is it can be used as another potential authentication factor just through the orientation of it. You know, we were talking about AI and machine learning earlier, and because you can detect the space between and the orientation, right? Maybe I I I use my phone in my left pocket versus my right pocket, right? And that's you start to establish kind of behaviors and patterns, and I could see that potentially being another avenue for, you know, authentication to take advantage of of a technology you know like that or or similar to it at least. Absolutely, absolutely. Because I think when we talk about the proximity, so we talked about the proximity of these peripheral devices to your access device, but now it's also the, the proximity of those devices to other sources that you're trying to access. 
So, so you talked about uh, the, the payment system, you say, okay, waving the card, as you were mentioning. So, so that's one way of saying, okay, well, you wave the card at the point of, uh, uh, point of service. So instead of paying with your credit card where you insert the strip, you now just wave that. So, so I think that in, in a way, I mean, if you look at the evolution of how payments have been done, uh, I remember that long, long time ago when you took your credit card, I mean, they had to basically put a paper on it and then basically slide it back and forth to get an imprint of the card. And then later on, you said, okay, well, you don't have to uh, do that uh, back and forth sliding. You can basically just slide it on a, on a POC. Uh, and then came the chip where you can, instead of sliding it, you just insert it and then wait for it and then you take it out. And now, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, you could actually just wave it at the, uh, at, at the POC. So, so I think that proximity of the device that is used as, a, as an authenticator and uh, the other device that you're trying to access through, I think that, that that's a very interesting concept that you mentioned. Well, I know you've been you know, very generous with your time to hear uh, with us today. And um, I wanna go ahead and start to get things wrapped up so that we can let you get on with your day. Um, before we get going, um, is there, are there any kind of fur, final pearls of wisdom or, or knowledge that you would like to impart upon us, uh, Asad? Uh, I, th I think that what, what, what really fascinates me is this confluence of uh, identity and data. And, and people have been talking about that, um, but I think it needs to be given a little more attention. That how can you protect your data uh, where the way data is encrypted or the way the data access is granted is not just uh, a simple access control list, which is triggered based upon your authentication. Uh, there needs to be a more fine-grained and intimate relationship between the identity and the data that, that you own. And, uh, and that's becoming even more prominent now because instead of keeping data in your private repositories, uh, enterprises are pushing it to the cloud. So now it is uh, uh, kept in, in Google or Azure uh, or, or Amazon. And the question is that well, you put it there, but then how do you protect it? So there are different levels of protecting. I mean, you could protect it just with the key which resides with the service provider, or you could protect it with a key which is tightly bound to your identity. And, and I think moving forward, that would be an area uh, that would be of interest to me. And I think it's uh, uh, of, of interest to uh, a lot of uh, technologists and think tanks and other people in the industry to solve that problem. And if you can do that, that to me is the holy grail of uh, of how identity and data can be combined. A lot of stuff to think about there, and I can you know, certainly see different keys for different use cases and different scenarios where it's adaptive. So good stuff to think about. Appreciate it, Asad. Um, Jim, anything else that you want to bring up before we uh, let Asad get on with his day? Sure, yeah. Um, so I had a little time today, and I uh, pulled up a, an old favorite from 2005, Kim Cameron's Laws of Identity. And I just reread it, and I'm like, man, this. This thing is genius. So 2005 was around the time I was just getting into the IAM space. I had my first project and started going to some of the conferences. And I was uh, at a conference shortly after this was published. And I just want to recommend it for anybody who's listening to the call. If you're not familiar with it or you haven't read it in a decade or something, go back out to Google. Um, look up Laws of Identity, Kim Cameron. Uh, he was out, out of Microsoft at the time when uh, he wrote this. And it's just, it's amazing. It was written 15 years ago. Honestly, you, you read it and you're like, this could have, you know, 90% of this could have been written yesterday. It's so foundational and fundamental to our industry. And it really helps you clarify your thinking. Uh, there's a whole section on, um, you know, you know, the, the idea that there need to be separate identity 
systems in place because uh, you know we often get in the idea of like, well, couldn't there just be a government identity system? And that wouldn't be appropriate for everything. You wouldn't want to entrust all of your information to the government or for them to be able to track your um, your journey over the internet. And so even though technology has changed over the last 15 years, these fundamental laws of identity really haven't changed very much. Um, so I just, if, if you have an hour or you, you know, you want to dive deeper, get more foundation in this industry, I recommend going out there and, and reading this 12 page, doc, 12 page document. I'll put a link to that in our show notes too, so that people can find it you know, really easy. It's Kim Cameron's laws of identity. It's kind of, uh, uh, the, the, I don't know, the uh, manifesto <laughs> for identity uh, and, and making sure that people kind of think about it. It is amazing that it was written at least 10 or 11 years ago, I think it was. So, um, so thanks for that. 15, wow, okay. Um, all right, so with that, we're gonna go ahead and wrap it up. Uh, Asad, thanks for joining us. Uh, for those that are interested in connecting with Asad, I will have a link to his LinkedIn profile uh, as well as the IDSA uh, on the show notes as well. So people can check that out. And uh, you can always connect with Jim and I on LinkedIn as well. Appreciate it when we get those out there and always happy to have a conversation with folks about identity management. And if you've got ideas for show topics, et cetera, don't hesitate to, to ping one or both of us. And uh, you can visit us on the web at identityatthecenter.com. You can follow us at IDAC podcast. I've been trying to up our meme game when it comes to identity. So um, if you've got ideas for that, or if you have something you want to share, send it to me and I'm happy to retweet it there or, or however we can get the, get the word out about some kind of LOL around IAM. So, um, all right, well, with that, we're going to go ahead and call it for this week. Uh, thanks for listening and we'll talk with y'all in the next one. You've been listening to the identity at the center podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and visit us on the web at identityatthecenter.com.